hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. I'm your host, Katie Helper. You can hear the Katie Helper Show every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on WBAI 99.5 FM. You can hear us on iTunes. You can hear us on SoundCloud. You can hear bonus episodes and extended interviews at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. On today's episode, I speak to Sovietologist Susie Weissman, who is a professor of politics at St. Mary's College in California, and she's the host of two radio shows, the Jacobin Radio Podcast, as well as Beneath the Surface on Pacifica's KPFK. She's on the editorial boards of Critique and Against the Current. She's the author of Victor Surge, a political biography, and is currently writing Leon Trotsky, The Most Dangerous Man in the World, and co-producing a documentary feature film of the same name. First, I talked to Susie about the Soviet Union, politics, communism, you know, little things like that. Then Susie and I talk about how she got interested in politics, how she moved from Montana to California, to Glasgow, Scotland, back to California, married a Chilean dissident, raised two kids. Hi, everyone. I'm here in Los Angeles in the really cool office of Susie Weissman filled with um, Victor Serge posters, uh, some Stalin in the corner. Stalin with Stalin with a clown nose. His. Yeah, tons of Trotsky, Rosa Luxemburg, Emma Goldman, um, and uh, Facundo Cabral, um, something on Gulag, tons of books, little bumper stickers, The Most Violent Element in Society is Ignorance, which is an Emma Goldman quote. Um, so I'm actually, full disclosure, I'm out here because in Los Angeles, because of the, for the wedding of Susie's son, Eli, a labor lawyer, and my best friend, one of my best friends, Kate Levin, a writing professor and a future novelist and a journalist, current, you know, she's written stuff and she's published short stories. Anyway, that's why I'm here. Susie has also been on the Katie Halper show. I should just say Katie Halper's been on my radio show, right. including today. And and so I, I just want to mention to your audience that Kate put us together, your friend. And as soon as we met in New York, we bonded yeah. and have a lot of stuff in common. Right. So, okay. And actually at this wedding, JetBlue lost... We've now recovered it. JetBlue lost my... Oh, you can laugh into the mic, by the way. Okay. Because Susie's doing that thing that Gabe used to do, which is that he'd cover up his laughter. Um, so JetBlue lost my suitcase. So I didn't have my suitcase with my dress to wear to Kate Levin and Eli Naduris's wedding. And Susie lent me a dress and it looked great. And she Very gave good. it to me and now I gave her a shirt. So we're Which even. I'm wearing right yeah, now. Yeah, it's a great shirt. And on that, yes. Um, and, so the, the funny thing was that... Katie texted me just as we were running out the door to drive two and a half hours to the wedding site. And I ran upstairs and just grabbed a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And I and, texted you for shoes. Yeah. Just thinking you'd have shoes. shoes. Too. But the funny part about it is I thought, yeah, if it's available, it's available at Wiseman's, which was the billboard coming into my hometown in Great Falls, Montana, where we were one of only five Jewish families in an anti-Semitic town. Oh, wow. So growing up in the backwoods, you know, I knew I had to get out. And I went to California and then to Scotland as a grad student in the Institute of Soviet and East European Studies. I went there to learn about, you know, I was this lefty and everybody thought they knew what the Soviet Union was or wasn't. And I knew they were just making it all up because mm. nobody read Russian, nobody knew any history. Right. They just had these 
ideas that one would contradict another. And I thought these people are just talking and shit. And you're talking about <laughs> leftists who, who or, or oh, critics yeah. or both? I mean, depending. No, mostly on the left because right. people had their own narrative, like of a socialist paradise, which it right. wasn't. And I knew that. And or, what did you study undergrad? What was your... Oh, I did English literature. Oh, okay. So then so. I made a switcheroo because I got super political and I went to Britain and I And got, how'd you get super political, if I can ask? The anti-war movement, civil rights movement. It started when I was in high school, but it really got deep in Berkeley. But then, and this is an interesting question. Because you thought, went to Berkeley for undergrad? First I went to Berkeley and then I went to Stanford and I was very involved, but I thought, you know, there were so many people who were playing at revolution. Mm. Like, you know, if it was a nice day and they woke up at noon, they, you know, go down to say their gate or to the plaza at Stanford, the quad, you know, and if it was a nice day, they'd like, you know, fight the cops. And right. it reminded me of uh, cowboys and Indians as a kid or cops and robbers, depending on what part of the country you're from. But I was like super serious and I really wanted to know more. So I started seeking out people who knew more. And then, and you know, and I joined an organization in the U.S. and they were um, very serious, but they were so straight and so like uh, on the cultural right of this radical youth movement that I felt like nothing in common with them. Right. And, it and wasn't then very there was fun, all right? that nonsense of the 60s that accompanied, you know, this kind of social cultural uh, radicalization. Um, and when I got a chance when I graduated to take a trip abroad, I couldn't wait and I didn't come back for nine years. And I went and it was once I was in Britain that I um, met up with other people that were in this international Marxist group and I became full time and we did things like organize anti-war teach-ins. We brought over Noam Chomsky oh, wow. and I.F. Stone and, you know, that was a voice from the past of independent journalism. Them? Oh, yeah. And um, and just ran, did all kinds of things. But then after about a year, I realized uh, I had to, you know, figure out my future. So a friend of mine suggested that I go to Scotland to study with Hillel Tickton, who was the one person who really knew what the Soviet Union was, had lived there, who had uh, written about it. So I applied and got in. What did you learn that kind of that wasn't being discussed because you talked about what a distorted image or distorted well, narrative there was. people would say that the Soviet Union was socialist and I saw it as a betrayal of everything that I knew to be socialist. Mm. It, if anything, it was anti-socialist, you know, and people, you know, so there was my, what I, and then there were all these different groupings who defined themselves on their analysis of the class nature of the Soviet Union, the so-called Russian question, you know, which has divided the left all over the rest of the world ever since because the Russian Revolution was the pivotal event of the 20th century. Everything afterwards was either in reaction to right. it or inspired by it, right. right? The Cold War, everything. So I thought it important to get it right. And especially if we wanted to be serious ourselves, we didn't want to make those mistakes. Right. So you have to learn and you have to learn like, and you have to really like read everything. I made it a point to go meet all the surviving left oppositionists that I could find and, All and three interview of them. them. No, there were more. No. And, you know, it was just it became kind of like an obsession. You would go there? Were they here? Oh, obviously they weren't there the at the world. time. Right. Some other, California had a good collection, wow. but Mexico, France, right. Spain. Um, did you go Soviet to the Soviet Union? Union? Yeah, I did, but not till 1989. Oh, wow. But I did definitely. Um, I met there 
I went to the first meeting where they were starting to rehabilitate Trotsky, but they didn't ever do it. And Victor Serge, and I took who I write about, I took Victor Serge's son, Vladdy, with me, and he had been expelled from the Soviet Union with his father in 1936. He was kicked out of his high school. Um, in the gulag, it was a town actually, for insisting that there were free trade unions in France. So that got him kicked out. And um, he was just telling, he was just stating fact, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, but so we went back and it was, it was really pretty historic, especially having Vladdy there, you know, on his first trip back. So how did you meet all these people? Were you, were there not a lot of people doing the research you were doing? No. And so, and I just sought them out. But at this one meeting, um, there was a guy, a little old man in a, in a military uniform who got up at the podium on this meeting about Trotsky. And he said, I was with Trotsky in the revolution. So I made a beeline for him and I said, I want to interview you. And so we went to his house like the next day and I asked him to tell me about, you know, how he met Trotsky. And he started talking. I'm going, wait a second. You're talking about the 1905 revolution. This is in 1909. And I said, so how old are you? And he stood up and he said, 113. Wow. And he did dance a little jig and he said, and I'm still wearing the same uniform. Wow. And I couldn't believe it. But he had been with Trotsky not only in 1905, but 1917 and in the Civil War. And where and where escaped, was this that you interviewed him? In Moscow. And he has since died, but he... Actually, I'm telling you wrong. He was 108 then. He died at 113. Wow. But he um, he had um, managed to survive the Stalin period by basically not going out, just being in his daughter's apartment wow. most of that time in the 30s. And your Russian got good, I assume? It got... No, I, I'm never going to claim that I have good okay. Russian. Can you read it well? I can read it. I can, you know, sort of... When I speak it, people kind of giggle. <laughs> But you were able to read documents in the original? Oh, yeah, I can read documents. And then, of course, when I started to do most of my research about, you know, Serge and Trotsky, they were writing in French and oh, got it, other right. languages. Right. So. so tell us about uh, your research. Okay, so um, let's see. We have about two hours now. Yeah, right. <laughs> I stumbled onto this great character, Victor Serge, whose life literally mirrors all the fun, the momentous struggles of the 20th century. He was uh, born in Belgium in exile. His parents were populists from Russia, Narodniks, as they were called, and they had to. Be, they were on the run because they're they were involved in the plot to assassinate Tsar Alexander II. And um, Serge's uncle was executed. He was hung. He was literally a rocket scientist oh who had plans in his head about building rockets as they were hanging him. And, <gasps> um, and they exist, some of these plans. But so Serge and his family moved to Belgium where he was born. And he said um, their house became, you know, sort of the central organizing point for Russian anarchists. And there were um, portraits on the walls of uh, all these executed heroes. And his father had nothing but disdain for what he called the bourgeois education for the poor. So uh, Serge never had a day of formal schooling. Wow. And he's a brilliant writer. But he did, you know, go with his father and ransack museums and art museums and uh, libraries and um, and got an amazing education and joined the Belgian Socialist Party at age 15, but quickly got, you know, disillusioned with um, the stodgy reformism 
of those who just wanted to pass resolutions but right. not do anything, but enchanted entirely by the anarchist individualists. And he moved to France. And then it's a long story, but then he, then the Russian Revolution happened. And that was like a beacon, right. you know, for for uh, or a magnet for people all over the world. My God, down with the Tsar. The right. Tsar was down. And the uh, first time you had a real socialist revolution in a huge country. So he tried to get there. He, he was in Spain, in fact, for this anarchist uprising. And... Um, had to pass through France where because of his activities and as an anarchist individualist, he immediately was arrested and thrown into a concentration camp in France. Wow. So what year is this? These 19, are 17. And then he spent uh, 18 months in this concentration camp with a bunch of other so-called Bolshevik sus suspects. And all they did is read Marxism and, and uh, discuss the revolution. And then, uh, this, the new Soviet government had captured a bunch of French officers who were there during the Civil War, and then they wanted to do an exchange. Mm. And so the French said, well, we have these Bolsheviks. Wow. <laughs> and so Serge was in a prisoner exchange and then landed in the Soviet Union and then spent 20 years there, but immediately fell into disfavor, into disfavor and, and was highly critical of of you know what Stalin was doing and sided with the left opposition, he ended up in exile all over Europe, but then finally in Mexico, like Trotsky did. So he survived. He survived, but died in Mexico in 1947. He was 57 when he died. Not old. He had written all these. If you ever want to read terrific literature, the best. And he's been kind of he's he's sort of known, but not that well known because he wouldn't conform with either capitalism or Soviet style. Uh, communism. So he was um, not very well known, although Orwell promoted him. Oh, wow. And his book, Memoirs of a Revolutionary, or The Case of Comrade Tulayev, or Midnight uh, in the Century, brilliant novels, brilliant memoirs, brilliant histories. Mm -hmm. So you, like, some people feel like it's a betrayal to criticize Stalin, then other people think that Stalin himself was the betrayal of, of the socialism. Absolutely. Um, yeah. He was, uh, in my view, the Stalin accession to power was a counter-revolution. Mm -hmm. And it turned, you know, it, it stained Marxism and socialism and communism with blood. And it's going to take, it is taking until literally Bernie Sanders made socialism popular again. It's the first time you could disassociate the bloodshed right. and and reclaim democracy as integral to the socialist project, because that's what Stalin destroyed, is any notion that it was that socialism slash communism, for him it was a dictatorship, and it's a one-person dictatorship. Um, and, and, you know, the whole notion was that workers themselves would plan and run their society. Lenin famously said, every cook can govern. And the notion that Marx had is that the workers would make the plans and then carry them out and they would create their own government. And all of that was taken from them. So was Marx wrong? What was he right about and what was he wrong about? Marx was, I think, historically correct. He said that socialism would have to come to the most advanced capitalist country that already had the institutions of democracy, had uh, developed the productive forces that had trade unions and political parties. And in fact, what happened is that those workers were co-opted and didn't make revolution. Right. But in the weakest link, the countries that didn't have any development, you there was easier to make a revolution. And Trotsky famously said, it, 
it was, you know, may well be uh, easy to come to power in the Soviet Union because it was easy, fairly easy for them to be successful. But to move to socialism was virtually impossible in a single underdeveloped country that barely had any industrial, you know, base. Right. So what does it mean to be a Trotskyist? Well, what did it mean then to be a Trotskyist? And what does it mean now when people are called Trots? The, uh, I see Trotsky as the continuation of revolutionary Marxism and that the Stalin in that tradition is a complete divorce from it. But if you want to look at the hallmark of it, Trotsky was an internationalist who said uh, you cannot have socialism in a single country. In fact, Radek made a joke. He was somebody on the Central Committee when someone at the Comintern, the Communist International, asked him, he said, is it true, comrade Radek, that you can have socialism in a single country? And he goes, well, Yes, but God helped the country. Right. Because what it meant was that rather than relying on a fraternity of socialist nations helping each other build, they would have to uh, get the resources from within, which meant exploiting the peasantry and squeezing the workers and doing it not, they didn't do it voluntarily. Right. <laughs> so from the get go, you know, it was impossible to create it in a backward country. And in doing so, they created this horrible society that they gave the name socialism to. So Trotsky understood that it had to be an international um, system and that, you know, the, the key task for them was to hold on as a democratic example, inspire workers in Germany, where they did have the, you know, sort of conditions and Britain and France, and that, that only if they had successful rev revolutions in Europe would they be able to build on that. And then begin this this you know s successful struggle for socialism. Right. So according to Trotsky, we've never had socialism because there's no. a capitalist world system that. Right. And I always tell people that communism belongs to our future, not our past. Mm. It's never been tried. Right. <laughs> what What's been tried is turned out to be, you know, I call it an abortion of a society. Right. Um, here's what I usually say to my students. I say if you must use the S word. For socialism, just call it a shit society. Because yeah. no, if you here's a very good marker. Think of any uh, Soviet um, exiles that you know, and tell me if you find one left winger among them, or one Marxist that mm -hmm. left any of Eastern Europe, uh, of any of those countries, or now even China. They hate that system because they had zero freedom right. within it. And that's no joke. People, you know, want to be in control of their lives. They want to have some role in society. And this was denied them. What you can say is in all of those societies, they managed to create, you know, a level of some level of equality right. and health care and vacations, but no personal freedom. But somewhat self-selecting, right? Because the people you'll meet here are the ones that left. So right. it's a it's a little the data is a little biased. Oh yeah, but I mean that I think that that's it's true about that, but it says something. That there's no significant works uh pushing Marxist theory that come from those countries. It's all, you know, it was it was like catechism. And what about Cuba? What do you think of Cuba? Um well I think Cuba certainly tried, you know, to be an improvement. But then if you couldn't have socialism in a single large country, how are you going to have it on a little island, you know, that was completely surrounded by the world's biggest imperial power that, you know, made sure 
uh, that, you know, so, that Cuba had no resources. And so, unfortunately, Cuba, I think, was forced into the embrace of the Soviet Union. They took over the secret police there. They created, a, you know, Castro never felt confident enough confident enough to trust the people to elect him right. or to have democratic institutions. So I think another example of, uh, you know, not the kind of society we want to build. If it isn't democratic, it isn't socialism. Mm. And no matter how many excuses they make, if it if they don't allow people real democratic, and I shouldn't say if the people don't take it for themselves and have the ability to organize for themselves, you know, real democratic um you know, channels of expression, then how can you call it something that people will want to aspire to in the right. world? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll have to talk more about this because, of course, the way the U.S. pushed, it was like the U.S. that pushed Castro into the embrace of the that. Soviet yeah. Union. Yeah, and they, they tried to, you know, to do the same thing to Nicaragua, that East-West thing. It, I would say the Soviet Union was capitalism's best friend because mm -hmm. it was such a terrible example you know, and then we made right. certain that any experiments in social change would be just as awful as the Soviet right. Union was. So there would be no inspiration. Right. Although you can also say that capitalism was, I mean, capitalism was, ca the embargo was Castro's good friend. Pressure. I think that, that there's a lot of truth in that. I would just say that what the Cold War did and then the Cold War with Cuba is galvanize support on each side for the regimes as bad as they were right. and didn't allow, you know, anything to the left, anything more creative. And we've broken through that right. now, even though we're in a Trump era. Right. Uh, Castro's foreign policy was pretty good. Um, yeah, to an, yeah, I, I, I mean, I have true. Cubans friends who are pro Castro who would say it's ideological warfare. It's not just altruism, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think this notion of, uh, of assisting other revolutions where they exist is an important task. Right. Or just curing them of eye disease. So <clears throat> I, I wanted to talk about Soviet stuff with Susie, but also sometimes I do these cool, if I do say so myself, personal interviews about people's biographies. And, you know, I did one with Jimmy Dore. We found out some cool stuff about his upbringing, his very Irish family, um, how he got into comedy. And Susie's lived a really interesting life. And in fact, at this wedding that I was at, there were a lot of people, some people from Scotland and Chile. And uh, that makes sense once you hear about Susie's life. So can you tell us, let's see, let's start with, um, you were married to a Chilean, Roberto Naduris. Can you tell us about how you met? How I met Roberto. And so, um, uh, well, it's kind of a long story how I got there. When I got there, I got to Scotland, the coup had just happened in Chile. So it was October, September, 1973. And I was staying with comrades who were super active, uh, had just come back from Chile and we formed the Scottish uh, Chile Solidarity Campaign and started welcoming the refugees pouring in. The Labour government in Britain had brought over a lot of Chileans and sent them to Scotland where there was a surfeit of housing because there mm -hmm. was, you know, like uh, it was a city in decline at the time and people were moving. Glasgow? Or Glasgow, yes. Okay, Glasgow. And it was pretty rough. Um, and then they also allowed all these, uh, not all these, maybe 10, say, Chilean academics, intellectuals. And my house, like everybody had these great old apartments with tons of rooms, dirt cheap. I think it was like 60 bucks a month or something. <laughs> and wow. yeah, and so like the house became kind of organizing central. And that's where Roberto arrived in January of 75 with his best friend, completely shell-shocked. 
from being inside the stadium and tortured, you know, when the coup had happened. So can you just explain, because not everyone's going to know the reference, what the stadium is? And also shell shock, by the way, is what, in case people don't know, we now call PTSD. PTSD, right. Post-traumatic stress disorder. But um, Yeah, so what happened after the um, the radical experiment in socialist democracy of uh, Salvador Allende was crushed by a brutal coup d'etat and brought uh, Pinochet to power, they rounded up everybody. And the National Stadium, which, you know, was a sort of focal point for football games or soccer, as we call it here, was turned into a concentration camp. And so was the other stadium. Um, and there were two stadiums, but the National Stadium was the largest. And something that like 30,000 people were crammed in. And they were down below, not in the bleachers, but down below in the locker rooms, crammed in like sardines in a can. And Roberto was one of them. Everyone was tortured. Uh, they were fed, uh, like he said, twice a day you'd get this bowl of dirty mud with oh a bean God. or maybe, if you were lucky, a piece of meat floating in it and some bread. And because Roberto was arrested with a dear friend who was a visiting academic from Haiti, great guy, Franz Voltaire, later to appear in the government, you know, the first government of Aristide, um, they wouldn't feed him because he was so-called black. Chileans can be very racist. And um, so Roberto and his friend Antonio would share their meager, you know, amount of food with him. And after um, something like 63 days in the, stu- in the stadium, when they did not give up anything under torture, they were expelled and uh, shortly thereafter had to leave the country. And Roberto, they first went to Argentina where they had some kind of um, actual grant to study at a graduate institute there. But then the military coup happened happened in Argentina. And the first thing they were doing was rounding up so-called subversive Chileans. So luckily, uh, because of World University Services and the labor government, they allowed all these uh, people to come to Scotland. And I, you could say, was the greeting committee, you know. And why, what was um, Roberto doing in Chile that got him? Well, he was a member of the Socialist Party. He had been one of the founding members of the uh, of the MIR before that, but had left it to go to the Socialist Party, the party of Salvador Allende. And then, um, he, but he was also like a young university professor. And they closed down the um, university within days. And he was in an apartment with friends. And they had this his friend, Franz, with them. And neighbors denounced them and said, there's an apartment full of subversives and the military came and picked them up. And, and so, you know, their future was curtailed. And when I say shell shocked, it was, imagine this, you leaving Chile, which is a California kind of climate and arriving in Scotland, dour, dark, rainy, gray, you know, cold, and speaking in English that even if they understood English, people couldn't understand. I barely understand that. Yeah, and so it, in every way, you know, their lives, they had promised to them, and now it was right. it was curtailed. So to make a very long story short, we had a short-ish courtship and then ended up marrying and having Eli, your friend, in Scotland. So he has, he's a Scottish-Chilean-Jewish. Right. <laughs> California. And Syrian, right? Isn't there some Syrian? Well, Roberto was a Lebanese slash Syrian Chile, and I'm a Russian Jew from Montana. So these two traditions, both struggle traditions, came together. And um, yeah, I heard that there were, so there are two stadia, 
One yeah. was outdoors, and you do see some photos of people outdoors, but they were mostly, I guess, pushed underground, like you were saying in the locker room. Yeah, Roberto's was outdoors too, and that's when I, that was that one. That that's one. where Victor yeah. Hara was, right? No, he was in the other. The other he one. was in the in the. I'm blanking Indoors on the name. One. The other it's like stadium. the gym thing, right? But he, the same thing. He was just in the smaller stadium, right? And um, and he and he was um, he was in the Chile Stadium, and Roberto was in the National right. Stadium, yeah. and that was the bigger one. And Victor Hunter was killed there, right? They like joked about how like player guitar now. He was a folk singer. They joked about that because they broke his hands. Yeah. And then he was killed. There's a lot of also rumor that, you know, like they said that they broke his hand so he couldn't play and they cut out his tongue so he couldn't <gasps> sing. Uh, that he last sang, is apparently. apparently not true. Oh, good. I mean, part, I don't know. But good. the hands it's... they did apparently break. And his songs, if you haven't heard them, you should yeah, look them really up beautiful. and listen because you'll have some very amazing yeah. hours of pleasure. We've played it before. I'll play it again right now. Amanda, I love that song. It's my favorite. Te recuerdo, Amanda. La calle mojada, corriendo a la fábrica donde trabajaba Manuel. La sonrisa ancha, la lluvia en el pelo, no importaba nada, ibas a encontrarte con él, con él, con él, con él, con él. Son cinco minutos. La vida es eterna en cinco minutos Suena la sirena de vuelta al trabajo Y tú caminando lo iluminas todo Los cinco minutos te hacen florecer Te recuerdo amando La calle mojada Corriendo a la fábrica donde trabajaba Manuel La sonrisa ancha La lluvia en el pelo No importaba nada Ibas a encontrarte con él Con él, con él Con él, con él Que partió a la sierra que nunca hizo daño, que partió a la sierra y en cinco minutos quedó destrozado. Suena la sirena de vuelta al trabajo, muchos no volvieron, tampoco Manuel. Te recuerdo, Amanda. La calle mojada, corriendo a la fábrica donde trabajaba Manuel. And, you know, I had Nando Villa on my show who talked about how there was a game, a soccer game between the Soviet Union and Chile and the Soviet Union didn't want to play in this torture stadium. concentration camp stadium and Chile refused to move it. And they weren't even saying they wouldn't play Pinochet's Chile. They were just saying a different stadium. They refused to move it. And then FIFA, 
the football organization like penalized. Okay, I'm so bad at sports that I didn't get this. This was a year before. It, it wasn't the World Cup. It was pre-World Cup and they were not allowed into the World Cup because of that. This was an amazing story. And, and you've just basically told the... And then there's footage of the Chilean team. They played the match anyway. I don't know if you saw it. There's footage of them. There's just They're just on it. They sing the national anthem. And then they run and they score a bunch of goals, obviously, because there's no opponent. Huh. No defense. I mean, it was like very <sighs> great metaphor for, yeah. Many um, years later though, right? No, that just year. Just owes that year. Yeah, because the Soviet Union didn't come out. And so they just played the game anyway. I mean, it's like against insane. themselves. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't even play against themselves. They didn't even do like, we'll split up. They just, I think they just scored against the other goal with Amazing. no effort. I mean, you know. Um, okay, so yeah. what, uh, what was he a professor of, Roberto? He was a professor of economic history, but yeah, and, and that was what he did, economic history. And he was starting another degree in sociology oh, wow. at the time of the coup. So do you remember seeing, like the first time you saw him, do you remember? He was so shy. Right. And if you really want to know, like getting down to it, like we were uh, very like talking all through the night and um, I was talking about uh, my opposition to the invasion of Czechoslovakia and to how horrible the Soviet Union had turned out to be. And he was sharing my positions on this. And then we moved toward like, you know, Israel, where I said that, you know, um, that you had to have a democratic secular Palestine, he said. Mm-hmm something like I had very exotic positions and I thought that was so romantic. Yeah. (laughs) We kind of went from there. And you were still studying at this point or you were, or you were, um, no, I was right. I was working on a PhD. First I was doing Yeah. Oh, you were already doing your PhD. Well, I wasn't quite, I've started, I was doing what they call an MPhil there. Okay. Masters in It's like, yeah, it's slightly first you do like a postgraduate diploma and then you get accepted to the master's and then to the PhD, but you write a thesis. And when did you learn Russian? I was learning it while I was there, speaking it poorly because it was another sort of weird thing that most of the students there went and spent a year in Russia, but I couldn't get a, a, a visa because I wasn't British coming from a British university and the Americans wouldn't give me one because I was at British university. Right. So as it turned out, all of my friends in the grad school who went came back all alcoholics oh, wow. who could not get into the archives. And so they just spent their time drinking Thank there. You and you weren't allowed to take a spouse or a significant other. And we had just gotten married. So as it turned out, I wasn't right. too upset at that right. point. Wow. And the work I was doing was all secret archives. I knew I wouldn't get into it. Okay. So, um, so you meet, you have a courtship for how long? Um, well, we sort of moved in fairly quickly, but we didn't get married till two years later. Oh, wow. Yeah. But you, so you shacked up? We shacked up. After <laughs> knowing each other for? Say three months, four okay. months. Um, and then you had Eli? There. There. In, in Britain, right. And then where did you get married? In Scotland. Okay. In front of a, it was a great little um the um, registry office downtown and and the, uh, uh, what do you call it, the guy who married us. It was all these students from Glasgow University, my friends. And what he did instead of talk about, he, he gave a lecture on the history of civil marriage in Scotland. And since they were all intellectuals, everybody was just fascinated. Right. <laughs> he kept going on and on. And why did, not that I care, I'm just curious, why did you guys wait? I mean, why marry at all 
if oh, you so that he could come to well because we were in love, but right. also because it would help him come to the U.S. Okay, so you, okay, got it. And also, I heard um, another story. I heard at the wedding was there was another about this someone standing in for someone. Oh yeah, so you met Oscar and Josie at the wedding right. when Oscar was a young refugee, and when he got married, his parents couldn't leave Chile to come to the wedding. So Roberto and I stood in and his proxies and his parents. And in fact, Roberto had already done something similar. Um, Eli, this is real personal. He's in Mexico right now. And our dear friends, Chilean Mexicans are there. Um, when I first met Roberto and I'd asked him if he'd ever been married before, he goes, mas o menos. And I went, what do you mean, mas right. o menos, right? And so his dear friend, Patricio or Pato, had taken asylum in the Mexican embassy, but wasn't yet married to Rosie, the woman he was living with. And in order for them to leave the country, they had to be married. So they held a wedding and Roberto stood in as proxy for the groom. Wow. Which we don't really ever do no. hear of here, but it was common at the time. So it's not like you, he was lying. He just stood in like, he openly just stood as in, proxy. But he wow. actually went through a ceremony. Wow. Did he say, I do? I think so. Or he should have said he does. Yeah. About Pato, right? Yeah, I don't know how he said it. But right. <laughs> and at this point, were you speaking in English or Spanish? Spanish. We always spoke Spanish. Did you Had, had you already studied Spanish? I had or? already had Spanish, and it got much, much better when the Chilean refugees arrived. Right, of course, yeah. yeah. Um, he was only starting to learn English. Got it. He could say, I smoke, thank you. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, and so, okay, you have Eli, and you're still in Scotland. Mm -hmm. Then you have another child, Natasha. Okay, so then you you come to the States, and what do you do here? Well, we came first to the Bay Area, thinking that might be the place, but we had friends and family in um, Southern California. Uh, Mike, my, our friend Mike Davis, the urban, you know, uh, what do we call him? Great writer mm -hmm. and genius and dear friend. So we came here and he introduced us to a lot of people. My sister was here and we fell into doing radio. Of all things, Mark Cooper, another uh, great journalist whose wife was Chilean and been through a similar sort of journey. We all got together and Mark was the program, he was, sorry, the news director at KPFK. And I started doing a, a show on the Soviet Union and Roberto started doing um, the Spanish programming. First, you know, cultural, political, and then news. And then he moved on to La Opinión, but a, Which is a, a, a big daily newspaper in Spanish. In Southern California. Tell us more about like your life here. You have two kids. You're on the radio. Yeah, poor. Poor, <laughs> Stretch <right>. mice. Right. <laughs> and um, doing a lot of politics and doing radio. And kids growing up doing a lot about that too. And... Um, and then what? Um, I mean, it's it, there's a lot of detail here. Now, Roberto got sick, and I thought I better, you know, be a little bit more serious. So I started to pay more attention to my PhD, and I started to write it here when the kids when my when my daughter went to kindergarten, and Eli was in second grade. So I just hold up in this garage here that you we're doing the broadcast from and, and wrote my PhD. So you had just put that on hold basically? Yeah. Okay. Put it on hold and then I went back to it and did it and then I got a job at St. Mary's. The um, college. In, yeah. Teaching politics and I've been doing that ever since. To hear more about Susie's life and how she met her current partner, Bob Brenner, as well as how she imbued her kids with politics without brainwashing them, please join our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. 
Beneath the Surface with Susie Weissman airs every Friday on KPFK Pacifica Radio from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Pacific Time on 90.7 FM in Los Angeles and 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara and worldwide at kpfk.org. You can find me on Twitter at KT Helps, that's letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S. And you can use the hashtag or look for the hashtag KT Helps Show, that's letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S-H-O-W. Make sure you rate and review us on iTunes. See you next week.